Hello, and welcome to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. Every week we'll cover one of the many cases of reincarnation experiences so that we can explore the reported facts and bring the discussion out into the light about what happens to our souls after death. But before we go any further, I'd like to thank Raphael Crux for allowing us to use his music from the freepd.com public domain music site. There are very few events that occur in human history that draw us all in as one by the gravity of what has happened, and there have been few events that have transfixed the world in such a poignant fashion as the sinking of the Titanic on the 14th of April 1912. The Titanic has always seemed a bit like a fly caught in amber to me. It remains fixed in time, fused to the fateful last moments of its time above the water. That image of the dying ship as its bow sank beneath the ocean and pulled the stern high out of the water, against that black velvet sky, and the tiny little lifeboats moving away on a vast empty sea that was described by one of the survivors as being so still that the stars were reflected on it. It's such a haunting image. The fascination with Titanic is different for everybody. For some, it's the wealth and opulence of the beautifully appointed ship. For others, it's the poignant recount of people's lives as they tick down to the end that is inevitable and unchanging, frozen in time like the ship itself. And for still more, there is a fascination with the beautiful people of the time whose wealth ended up buying their passage on a doomed ship, leaving them to learn the harshest lesson that nothing has higher value than life itself. But for one man, it held a frightening fascination that drew him in again and again with a vague mixture of dread and fear that he just couldn't bring himself to turn away from. I'd like to welcome Paul Amaralt to the podcast so he can share with us his very own Titanic journey. Paul, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. It is very exciting for me, Marilyn, to be here. Oh, thank you very much. I loved the book. And I've got to say, if anyone out there is looking for a great Christmas present for someone who loves reincarnation, it'd be the perfect present because it's just got everything. It's such an amazing read and you find yourself just relating so much to Jack. He comes alive for you. It's, it's really beautifully written. You've done a beautiful job with it. It really is. I really appreciate hearing that. It was a labor of love. I mean, it was 12 years of writing and, and you know, it was just like that endless project that we have. And you know, or I'd put it off and put it off and put it off. And then finally, you know, when it comes together and you see it, you go, wow, you know, that's, I, I was very, I was very happy. Man, you know, but, oh, you should be. You really feel you get to know him because you wrote compassionately, but also so honestly about who he was and what happened in the whole experience. Because as you say in the book, there were times where he faced his own personal things. He also made some errors that he <laughs> judged himself for. Yes. No, he was very hard on himself. Put it this way, as hard as he was on potentially others, he was much harder on himself. I think that's true of a lot of people who, uh, you know, he sort of had a chip on his shoulder and the stuff he wanted to prove. And in some ways it contributed to the pain of that night and that voyage, you know. You can feel that in the writing. It's beautifully done. So you also mentioned you've just written another book, actually. So what's that yes. book about? Well, so I've written, um, I guess once you get stuck by the whole past life bug, you know, um, after having had that experience of going through, you know, sort of seeing the life of Jack and what happened in that, it sort of was sticking with me. And um, and it's um, I, I didn't intend to write it 
there are two books now. It's a series. The second one I just finished. It just went to the editor today, actually. But it relates to reincarnation in a way, you know, I didn't expect I would be a thriller writer. It's very different writing than The Man Who Sent the SOS. But I was inspired by the work of Dr. Helen Wambach. When I was promoting the book for the first time, I was trying to put together articles about other past life cases and people who were studying it. And Dr. Helen Wambach was someone who, in the 1970s, she was a psychologist in San Francisco. And she did the very first studies that were ever done on past life regression and, you know, the phenomena itself, whether it works, whether it's true. And it's interesting because when she did it, research was much more difficult than now for skeptical people to say, oh, they just saw it on a YouTube video and they're spouting it off. You know, this is something that comes out of their imagination or they're accessing memories from this life. She did this in the 70s when information was harder to come by. And she developed a bunch of things where she would ask people instead of, you know, who are you with or who are the closest ones to you? She was asking, you know, what are you eating for dinner? And um, what kind of utensils do you use? And describe where you sleep, you know? So she was going at that. And then she did a lot of research and discovered that like 96% of the people that she regressed, actually she could confirm the things they were saying. But the reason that I was excited about reading about her is that she found out that on average, out of something like 1,100 past life regressions she did, there was a 51 year average time span gap between lives. Oh, that's interesting. And what really shocked me when I read it was, oh my God, there's exactly 51 years between when Jack Phillips died and when I was born. And I started looking at other cases and there's a kid named James Leininger. He uh, remembered crashing off an aircraft carrier in the South Pacific during World War II. And he was reborn again. And again, he's like 51 years later. So what inspired me was, okay, so who else died 51 years ago that are adults now on the earth? And it's like, oh, all the Nazis, all the propagators of World War II. So they're back because, well, look at the politics, look at the hate, look at the crimes. So I did a thriller basically with that as the basis, you know. That so. is actually a really good thought. Just 10 years ago, can you imagine Nazis marching? Or, I mean, what, one thing that really shocked me was that there was these kids at some school function down in, I think, Fullerton, California, which is kind of a, you know, nice, rich area of Orange County. And these kids were basically suspended for singing a Nazi song. And it was like a Nazi drinking song that hasn't been recorded in 70 years. Like how these kids even knew the song. Really? So my thought was, well, let's share that information. So it's a thriller called The 25, and the sequel will be coming out later this year or first part of next year. But I think that writing Dan Who Sent the SOS gave me that bug, you know, like once you see that you can accomplish something and you finish that book and you look at it and you go, well, I did that. It just makes you a maybe bolder for the next thing. Interesting you say about fear, because I actually think that fear is also related to reincarnation too. And I think we allow fear to stop us doing so many things in our lives. I think that we need to stop being so damn afraid of everything, you know, and mm -hmm. give it a try because mm -hmm. yeah. great things can happen like wonderful books and podcasts, you know. Looking at past lives and reincarnation, it really is the ultimate 
banishment of fear because I mean, what is the ultimate fear is death. And when you realize that, mm, you know, at most, according to Helen, it's like 51 year gap and then you're back and you're someone else. So what is the big deal? Why the terror? And it sort of frees you up. And I know, like in my experience, dealing with sort of the journey I went on in trying to find out, did I have a past life? You know, why am I so obsessed with Titanic and all that? And what are these weird fears that I have that don't necessarily relate to how I grew up or, you know, me? Like, I felt like I was sort of owning fears that weren't really mine. And I discovered going through this process that I lost a lot of them. Some larger ones, I suppose, like feeling so attached to the family. Um, and I don't mean to take this the wrong way is that because I think Jack ended up with a lot of regrets, you know, he was the ultimate sort of victim of that story that you hear, which is make sure that you tell everyone you love them every night <laughs> because you may not be back tomorrow. And, you know, I don't think that he felt like he left his family with that knowledge prior to him, you know, dying far from them without any way to talk to them or reach them. And I think that tragedy in my life before I realized what it was sort of put me in that place where I was, you know, even though I lived 3000 miles away, I was sort of obsessively close. You know, I, I don't want to use it the wrong way. You're supposed to be close with your family, but you know, I, I might've been a little bit more nutty about it. And then once I saw this, I realized, oh, it's in reaction to something that happened, but it's not mine. And so balance. You touch on some really interesting points in the book, like you were talking about, you went to see the graves of the Titanic with your father and you ended mm -hmm. up having a quite profound conversation with him. Oh, that was very healing. That was very healing. And it was an echo. Like, like I'm not sure that my dad is Jack's dad, and, you know, and maybe you just look for the same people when you come back. I don't know. But I do feel it was hugely healing. And it was it was it was just random because, you know, if you know my dad, he's he's a character. He calls himself the weasel. And, you know, like jokingly, but he'll be the first one who'll be like, hey, what's for dinner? I'm coming over. You know, he's a, he's a cut up. He's kind of a card. And he came on this trip just because I had a hotel room and it's like, oh, you don't mind if I crash you? And I'm like, sure. No, come. And, you know, then out of the blue, all this healing came from our past, which really had been, you know, was ancient history. But it, it just all kind of came out there. And it was it was very profound. When you look at the kids, I've done a lot of research of the kids who remember reincarnation, mm -hmm. and um, a lot of them say that we all actually share our lives with the same people often. Right, right. No, he could be. He could be. And then again, though, what I found a lot of it is culturally the differences, because when I was doing these past life regressions, I was looking at this man, you know, very together, British in the old school way. Uh, and interesting, the town where Jack grew up is where. Lord Baden-Powell, the founder of the Boy Scouts, who was basically operating around the time that Jack was alive. And this whole idea that all these kids really need to be toughened up and all that they needed to be men. And so this guy was definitely of that mind. He was very, you know, he was rigid. He didn't really show a lot of emotion. And whereas my dad was a lot like that when he was younger, but he's not like that so much anymore. He's more of a big teddy bear. I had an interview with a guy called Robert Snow who he remembered a mm -hmm. past life where he was a painter. And he said that in that past life, he was a very different personality. He was sort of 
mean-spirited and wasn't very giving. And if you speak to Robert now, you know he's he's not like that. Like he was a police officer mm-hmm. and you can tell that he's mm-hmm. a very caring person. So maybe although our souls reincarnate over and over again, I don't think our personality necessarily stays the same. It doesn't. I really don't think so, too. And, you know, it's funny because Jack came from a more conservative time. He was much more conservative, what I would consider conservative than me, because he was a working guy making good money in a cutting edge technology field back in the day. And he, you know, was a little bit of a snob. I mean, he kind of looked down at the working poor and, you know, he found himself very offended by strikes and things that would you know, interrupt his life. Like he didn't have tons of, you know, not the same empathy that I have. So I know that I'm a softer, (laughs) a bigger softy than he was. But I also feel like he didn't live long enough to learn enough. You know, he would not have been that same person older. He was constantly growing, I felt. So, you know, because people have said to me. he was quite young when he died. Yeah, he was 25. Yeah grow up in a conservative environment, a conservative family, you're going to be conservative, you know, grow up in a more, grow up in the 70s, you may not. That's very true. I think from the moment that we're born in this life, regardless of whether we have memories or not, we're influenced from the events in this life. Yeah. I think that's the whole point of it. And I think in a way, that's why we don't have normally access to the memories, because otherwise, it becomes something that we then become interested in that. But I think sometimes we're meant to do that, because there's still issues from that life that are affecting this life. I I totally um, agree. I found myself wondering if you were meant to actually be led to your memories because there's a degree of synchronicity. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I feel that way too. Very much so because, yeah, just because it seems like almost every time I was getting to the point where, oh, it's not true, this is bogus, something would happen (laughs) that would just make me go, yeah, it kind of is true. You need to look at that. And my story, I can say this, um, is different than a lot of the ones that have been on your show. I mean, maybe more like Roberts, because he did go ahead and go to a past life regressionist. I went my first time because my boss made me go um, because I was researching a TV show. Yeah. So when I went in there, um, it took me a while. I, I was very quickly hypnotized. I was very quickly like, God, I can't move my hands. Wow, this is freaking weird. But I wasn't accessing stuff right away. And what the hypnotist did was she she, you know, she tried to do the, you know, open the door and, you know, you're in your past life. And I was like, "Mm, no, I'm in your apartment and I can hear the clock. I can't open my eyes. It's dark. But, you know, I'm not where you where you want to put me, you know, but she was very calm. And she said, um. Sometimes people have connections to bodily imperfections. She goes, if you have a birthmark, I want you to focus on it now. I want you to think of anything, you know, that is not a perfection of your body. And, you know, setting aside the fact that I was overweight and there were a lot of things I might have thought about, what I did think about was this, you know, blood vessel that had recently popped on my leg. And it created this scar that just sort of a weird wine-shaped sick kind of orange red discoloration that that sort of made me ashamed to wear shorts and go to the beach and i instantly thought of that and then from the second all i did was picture it and all of a sudden it was like boom i was somewhere else and i know robert snow i've actually talked to him but i've also seen some videos of him and he kind of says the same thing which is that 
it is like hyper real. Like when you go in there, it's like people who know when you have like one of those 5G TVs or whatever, where it's just so flawless, you're stunned by the quality. That's how it was like. And I was in the South Pacific and I was running to a boat, like a long boat that was in the water. We call an outrigger canoe because it had something on the side there, basically, that balanced the boat. And we were all rushing to it. There's a landmass to my right um, that goes out to a little point, and there's a bunch of palm trees. The sand is white, 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 and the water is this aquamarine, very distinct color. And, you know, I'm running around, and I'm going, oh, my God, where the hell am I? This is crazy. And I turned around, and I saw basically a horde of people chasing us, very, very dark-skinned natives. We're splashing through the water. It's not getting very deep. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, my God, I, we need to get moving. And somebody comes up behind me and just spears my leg. And the thing goes right in. You know, the last thing I see is I fall over. The water splashes over me. And I can just see the boat, like, being pushed away and people jumping on it as I go. And I was like, what the hell was that? You know, I was really freaked. So I saw a life that, or what appeared to me, an end of a life. And it was scary. It was weird. And after it was over. She heard me reacting and she brings me back and she's like, okay, so would you like to see more of that life? And I was thinking, hell no, I don't want to be boiled in a pot. Like I felt very strongly that something was going to happen to this native that I didn't want to happen. And so I said, no. And weirdly I said, no, there's something else. And she said, oh, okay. Well, then obviously, you know, your subconscious has something it needs for you to see. So I want you to just go with it. Just ask your subconscious, what is it that I need to see? And her words had not died out when I am in the water at night in darkness, looking up at the hull of a massive ship. And from the angle of it, it looks like it's going to come down on me. Like it's a scary moment where I look up at that. And I was so shocked seeing that image that I just had a physical reaction and I popped open my eyes and I was like, no way, you know, you know, like she didn't, she never brought me back up from the regression. And I was like, wow, you know, all I could think was that was, that was the Titanic. Robert had the same experience when he had his regression. He said he went and sat out in his car and he just. Mm -hmm. sat there for about half an hour just not even yeah. able to believe yeah. what he'd just been through yeah no that was me that was totally me sitting in my car going what the hell and then as I was thinking about it I did remember this thing that happened when I was a kid you know the scary ship it was like the same scene only this was in crystal clear high def whereas the other one was you know just sort of shadow and I mean it's hard to explain but it, it was a sim an image similar to something I saw as a kid, but it was just so detailed and real and terrifying, you know. But at the same time, I had always been haunted by Titanic all my life. And there was a part of me that wondered, well, why is that? You know, like, I would say this, my Titanic obsession was not a fun obsession. You know, like, it's not like being a Harry Potter geek or a Tolkien geek, you know, where you enjoy this world that someone created and you want to experience every bit of it and you're excited for me it was like like a flame that you couldn't get away far enough from you know you were drawn like that moth and um almost sort of like a repellent 
attraction it, to me. Yeah, yeah, it was because it was scary and it was frightening and it was weird. And when I was a kid, I opened the book that way where we were all in the pool. And for the first time, I suppose if one has in fact indulged in skinny dipping, one would probably remember the first time they did it. And we got the idea that our parents would see us if the lights were on. So she turned out all the lights. There was no moon. And in that moment of blackness, I see this scary ship looming over me. So, yeah, I, I feel that my Titanic obsession was all not positive. And I would explore it or think about it. And then I would move away and then something would happen. And I think about it again, leading up to that regression that I had. No, I, I agree with you. Synchronicity is a huge part of it. And maybe that's why, you know, I just when I'm not dealing with it. Something else would happen that would make me start to look at it again. Yeah, because it was quite a journey, wasn't it? Like you didn't write it in the space of, say, six months or a year. It, it literally <laughs> almost went from when you were a little boy mm -hmm. until you released the book. Yeah. The whole life, Yeah, I really. was still rewriting it. Exactly. In 2017, I was still rewriting it. I mean, it took 12 years, but really it, a draft was done in 2011. And then it sat around because there's also, too, I mean, here's how the synchronicity didn't work. I finished it in 2011 and I thought, oh. Maybe I should publish this at the 100th anniversary of the sinking. And then another part of me was like, no, don't do that, because you would be perceived as someone who's trying to manipulate the thing. And ultimately, my goal for publishing it was just sort of put it out there and find other people, you know, and I've been approached by other people who have Titanic memories, which is great. Um, you know, but the idea is like, hey, this is my story. You know, if you're drawn to it, then it's awesome and it's for you. But, you know, but I didn't feel like jumping on that train of 2012 because I felt like it would just feel yuck. I think you can see very clearly in the book that you're actually writing it, as you say, as a form of catharsis. It's nothing to do with trying to mm -hmm. cash in on the Titanic legend or mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. anything like that. You can feel it in the book that right. it's it's actually your own personal journey. Oh, so. thank you. I appreciate that. And, yeah, and I've had that same situation come up because – Currently, there is uh, a company in the U.S. that controls the wreck who just got permission from a judge, a very, in my opinion, misguided judge, who basically changed the agreement that RMS Titanic, the company, has on the wreck, where before they were permitted to take things out of the debris field but never touch the wreck. And now a bunch of them are going after the Marconi room. They intend to basically pull up the remains of the Marconi graph and all of the equipment in the silence cabin and all the, the, you know, the parts of the ship that Jack used. And, you know, I'm appalled by it. I, you know, on Facebook, I wrote a blog about it, but I'm hesitant to jump in for the same reason, because it just seems self-serving. And I express my point and I hope they don't do it because I think that room is a grave, you know, like I really think that the stoker who Jack and Harold had their little scuffle with right before the ship sank, I, I think it's very likely that his shoes and any remains that didn't deteriorate are in that room right now. And I think they will be really grave robbing. But like I said, it's just like this, it's this weird synchronicity where this happens, but I'm like, okay, but I'm not going to, you know, like, like what, you know, I'm an authority because I have memories of Jack's life. No. I, I kind of agree with you about taking things from the Titanic because I seem to recall hearing that uh, when it started to sink, they threw the, the bulkheads up in the ship and people were actually trapped underneath, weren't they? And 
weren't mm, able to mm. get out. But yeah, there have been stories about that. And some I've read some articles saying that it didn't happen. But I think it is true that when they closed the watertight doors, absolutely, people got trapped in those sections. And there was there was no way out but those doors. You know, yeah. So to try to protect the ship, people were entombed immediately. Anyway, those were the stories I heard. And then I've read other articles where some people really dived in and figured out where every single person was on Titanic up until the time the ship went down. And they say, no, that's not true, that those were rumors that were told by the survivors, like from the minute they got off the ship. But just like in any disaster, there's going to be a lot of stories and you have to wade through it. So anyway, so I'm not sure that did happen, but I do know it was talked about. The sinking actually takes longer than you think, doesn't it? Like he, there is a reasonable amount of time from the time the iceberg hit to them actually going down. So I believe that the ship sank at 2.20 in the morning, and I believe that it was something like, it was a little after five. It was, I mean, there were three hours or so in the water before Carpathia showed up. Wow. So, and there, there were a few people that were pulled out after some time in the water, you know. Really? But, yeah, Gee, I didn't not, know that. Yeah, part of the Titanic movie that is true is that one of the officers, I think it was the fifth officer, Harold Lowe, he did take a boat. He saw that, that a bunch of boats were sitting in the water half full. They could all hear the screams of everyone who was dying. So he basically, he combined boats basically just to get a free boat. And then he went back and, you know, it was like a half hour, 45 minutes or whatever. And he did pull some people out of the water. There's a famous baker who, like, I wish Jack knew about it because he might have wanted to drink on the job. But there was a baker who, a pastry chef on the ship, who just got completely, completely drunk. And it lowered his body temperature so completely that he was literally in the water for a half hour, 45 minutes. And when Harold Lowe's boat came around, it's like, hey, yeah, I'm here. I'm cool. <laughs> and everyone else was dead, you know. That's yeah. Funny. So, no, they apparently, if you have enough of it, you run the risk of falling asleep and then drowning. But, yeah, yeah. I suppose if you're in a life jacket, though, you're just going to sit there and bob. And I think that's what he did. And he was one of the ones that they based the other part of the movie on because his story was he climbed up like like Jack and Rose do in the movie. He climbed up to the very end of the uh, stern. And when the ship went under, it apparently went under with such a little just it, there really weren't even many bubbles. He said he'd never got his head wet. But you just the, floated off. Almost. Yeah, he just floated off, and that was it. So that, that probably contributed, too, you know, not getting his head wet. But, yeah, but he was alive, and there were, I think there was one or two others that were. So when James Cameron wrote the movie, he put Rose in that situation. But this, this tells you all the, all the <laughs> obsessive information that I had about the ship, you know, for reasons that aren't really known. But people say, I wish I had my reincarnation memories. And I think in a way, actually, they're a bit of a blessing and a curse. I mean, I think they can be very interesting, but I think they can also be very traumatic as well. Yes. No, I agree. And it, I think it depends on the person, you know. It's always good to know, but it's scary. Like when people come to me and say, is it worth having a regression? It's like, well, I suppose it's like some advice I heard about Hollywood, which is that you want to discourage them. Because it's only those who won't be discouraged who will be able to survive, like, in a very tough industry. But, like, with past life regression, I, I would encourage people if they have fears and things that obsess them, that bother them, that don't seem to line up with how their life 
should be, maybe. Because I found that, I mean, in this particular case, you know, I had this ridiculous fear. And again, it's stupid because, I mean, there are some fears like terrifying fears where you can't go out of your home. And I never had that. But I had this fear of tall buildings falling on me. Like I could never stand on the street in front of a skyscraper and crane my neck and look up. I would freak out. And I would, you know, like when I visited the Empire State Building, you know, with Pat, my original partner, we were in New York, you know, we got out of the cab and I just went, boop, 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 ran across the sidewalk and went in the door because I was okay once I was in the building and actually had no problem being a hundred and whatever stories up. But looking up at it, I couldn't deal with. And it really, you know, it just scared me. Like I'd get goose flash, I'd get like panicky. And then once I saw these regressions, it's like, well, no wonder, you know, Jack resurfaced and found himself under <laughs> the rear hull of Titanic and he felt it was going to roll over on him. And it was a really terrifying thing to see. And, you know, once I saw that, it was like, oh, so that's not me. There's no reason for you to fear a building falling on you or a ship, you know. So I dumped it and now I can do that. And so I do think that if you have some weird stuff like that that are interfering, it's really worth checking out because you might really be surprised. Mm, yeah, I do agree with you. I think it's it's actually a good idea to, to at least give it a try. So with regards to regression, going into it, were you a, a total skeptic? Well, you know what? I mean, on the one hand, I think we're all really complicated creatures, you know, because like on the one hand, I was like, wow, you know, with all that damn Titanic session, maybe there is something there with that. Like, I, I won't say that that thought never occurred to me before doing it. But the other part is I read stories about how, you know, past life regression was debunked, that basically people are opening themselves up to fantasy interpretations. And when a hypnotist says, take me to your past life, they're essentially giving you a coloring book. And then you fill it in with all the colors of your imagination. I read all this skeptical stuff about it. And the person who was giving me the regression actually was skeptical as well, which was really fascinating because we were working on a skeptical show where it was called Put to the Test. And the idea was if people make claims like I have a ghost in my house or I can talk to dead people or, you know, or I'm a psychic detective, I can touch evidence and I can tell you about a crime or I'm a dowser and I can find water underground, we would be like, okay, you know, we're going to give you a little test and see how you do. So we always worked with people. So it wasn't like we were trying to debunk, but what we were trying to do is demonstrate whether or not these abilities were true. So the person I talked to was kind of skeptical. She's like, you know, I don't know what to think of past life regression because I use it all the time. It's hugely effective. And as a therapy, it's awesome. She goes, but I don't know truly if it's like the subconscious showing you things that symbolically will help you heal the problems that you have, or if it is truly is looking at a past life. So she, and even now she's still fairly skeptical about it. So, yeah, so I kind of had had a long conversation with her and I had read a lot of skeptical stuff. So while I was potentially open to it, I wasn't going in there thinking, oh, yes, I am going to enjoy a bunch of past lives. And, you know, it was it was really kind of shocking to see that image of Titanic. The one thing that my hypnotherapist told me before I left was she said, you know, I just want to prepare you. It doesn't happen with everyone. But once you do this, 
you may suddenly find yourself back in that situation. Like a so sort of thing. yeah, you, yeah, exactly. So so if it happens, just relax and calm down, and you know, count to ten, and it'll be gone. And maybe it was like two weeks later, I had another image of the sinking ship, where you know, literally, it just was out of nowhere. I was trying to go to sleep couldn't sleep. And then all of a sudden, boom, I was on the ship again. But this time I wasn't in the water. I was actually on the deck and it was plunging towards the ocean and I'm grabbing a hold. And I see just sort of this wave come up over the bow. It was a pretty violent thing that I saw, you know, like the, um, I don't believe the movie really accurately shows how the bow, it shows very accurately how the bow settled. But once the, the sinking began, you know, it was far more violent for those in the front of the ship before the ship split, you know, like it, <laughs> it plunged down pretty scarily. And the movie makes it look like, oh, you know, people are just stepping off into like foot high waves into the boats, you know, but it was, it was far more violent. But I saw that and I didn't know how it related to the other one. Like, you know, wait a minute, I'm outside the ship looking up at it and I'm also going down with it. What, you know? And it was it was only much, much, much later when I when I saw in regression that I was seeing them in reverse order, like the first image of Titanic I saw being under it was under the rear of, you know, the half that split apart and was basically still bobbing on the ocean. So I was, you know, I went down with the bow, came up when I could basically fight the suction and found myself basically with the stern looming over me. If I could do it over again, what I would have done after that, after seeing the flashback of the sinking, I would have just basically either paid the woman I went to or found another hypnotherapist to just go in there and dig it out at once, you know? But I was a little scared. <laughs> Understandably. <laughs> yeah. And also, I was a little broke. I won't tell you, you know, if anyone listening to this thinks that like journeyman TV producers make tons of money, well, maybe if you're executive producer, but not at the level that I have been certainly back then, you know, so I didn't have the kind of money to to spend. But that's an excuse. I mean, realistically, I could have done it, but I was more afraid. And I basically was like, well, you know, I knew a bunch about Titanic. I was obsessed about it. And any new book that would come along, I'd collect, you know, I didn't read all of them, you know, but it was more like I was just sort of obsessively collecting. And, you know, I, at time, fortuitously, and I think you just talked about the synchronicity, the VHS came out of the British adaptation of A Night to Remember, the classic Walter Lord book. And it was a film made in the 1950s, and it was in black and white, and it had not been released on video in the U.S. before. And so this happened and I'm like, oh, convenient, you know, instead of <laughs> going to a bookstore and finding it because I, I couldn't find my copy of it at that time, um, you know, I'll just rent the VHS. And, you know, I know it's supposed to be a documentary. So, you know, maybe I would feel an association with one of those people. Like I knew that, hey, 1500 people died. I could have been any one of them, you know, and um I watched the movie and it was well done. I mean, it, you know, I knew it was a movie because it didn't have the same level of care in recreating Titanic as James Cameron's film did. You know, like that film is a trip just because of how real it is and how you really feel like you're on the ship. Um, but this one was more, was not really that. Um, but 
when I got to the parts where the Marconi operator essentially makes contact with the Carpathia ship and, you know, just that whole scene and especially the not the Titanic side of it so much, but sort of when they illustrated what happened on Carpathia when the wireless operator woke up the captain and the captain in that moment is first is furious and is like, oh, my God. And, you know, that was just so powerful for me. Like I started crying, like I started weeping. And I mean, as you can tell, sometimes I'm a little bit of a cut up, you know, like I don't I, I'm not really movie weepy guy, you know. I'll admit to it, I did uh, cry when E.T. died, but I was young. I think we all did. <laughs> but, but usually I, you know, like I watch Love Story and I hear things and yeah, you know, it's sad, but I'm like, you know, they're, they're putting that music in. You know, this is all phony baloney. Like I was usually critical, but seeing this, I was just, you know, I just cried. It was, it was really powerful. And I think looking back on it, it was because Jack never saw that moment. But just seeing how that message was received on Carpathia and how they jumped into action just made me really cry. Anyway, so I thought that was weird. And then I told my partner about it a few days later. I was like, you know, there's something really weird happened when I watched the movie. I was crying at this. And do you think that that has any meaning? And he's like, mm, probably not. But he goes, let's watch it again. It's a great movie. So we watched it again. And then when it happened, he looked at me and I'm just like, you know, sniffling and tears are pouring out of my eyes. And, you know, um, I did it one more time, too, just to be a masochist. And it just made me go, hmm, maybe something to do with the wireless guys. Why am I responding to this in such a strong way? The book goes into all the details. I won't attempt to tell every bit of it because I think it would become more of a mini series. But, you know, I basically was like, wow, I looked into the, the stories. One of the guys, one of the wireless operators, the Marconi operators on Titanic had survived and he lived till he was like 57 or or maybe he died in 1957. So technically, if you know, if it was a quick turnaround, I could have been him, but I didn't think so. I felt this person had died and I felt this person had died. This scary image and the feeling of you need to get away and the story that came out and I actually cut this bit from my book because I just felt like there was just one too many of those moments where it's not true. Oh, it might be true. And this was where um, there's still questions about how Jack Phillips died on Titanic. And there were some people that believed that he was on a life raft and he succumbed during the night and he was buried at sea at the Carpathia. So that is a story that has been told since 1912. But a modern guy, George Behe, a modern Titanic historian, actually looked into that story and realized that it was a case of he said, she said, because the guy who told the story was the second officer, uh, Lightoller. And he told it, I think, very early on. And then he told it in much more detail in a book like 20 years later. And the story he was telling basically matched Harold Bride's story because Harold Bride was on that particular life raft. So all the things that Harold Bride told him, he was subscribing to Jack Phillips, who wasn't on that raft. But the story goes around and around. And so, so I was thinking, well, if he did, if he was on the raft, if both were on the raft 
I just didn't feel that that was the person I was. So I was like, okay, it's not true then, or I'm not really related to these guys. So then well, I... Well, close to, I mean, Harold definitely would have known who Jack Phillips was. So, I mean, right. if he was in the boat, yeah. he would have known Jack was right. in the boat with me. Exactly. But it was one of the Engelhart boats. Based, it was a canvas-sided boat where it was a flat wooden surface, and they had sides that were to come up. And they got one of them launched, but this one basically was on top of the roof of the officer's quarters. Jack and Harold jumped up there and they were having trouble getting it off. So they ended up cutting it and it went upside down. So Harold ended up on that boat and there were so many people on that boat and Harold was sitting down and someone was sitting on his leg where he ended up almost losing it from frostbite. So I can understand, except that Harold was like, maybe he was on the other side and I couldn't see him. But the fact is, they would have talked. He knew his voice. He would have known. And Harold Bride at the time said in 1912, Jack, I heard, was on the boat too. But I never saw him. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so, yeah. But I really do think for three hours they were talking and he would have heard Jack. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They weren't that big, the, the, the lifeboats, were they? Like They were, well, they were. No, you know what? Maybe like 12 feet. But yeah, so an upside down. Yeah, you know, you're right. But it's not that big. He would have heard it, you know. But but there were something like 31 guys on it. And they were standing upright, you know, like it was like. And apparently they only allowed sailors on that boat. Like <laughs> the crew members, they, they even got into trouble when they testified before one of the committees where they're like, yeah, he was the last person we invited on the boat. And the judges were like, Invited? What do you mean? Oh, no, I mean that got on the boat. The reality <laughs> was they were invited. And at that point, it was like, we're going to protect our friends and screw you customers, you know. It's like, so, but I wasn't alive for that. But I'm pretty sure that is how that went down. So, but yeah, there were like 31 standing on it. So it had to be like 12 or 15 feet. Like, you can't have 31 people standing on a six foot boat. No, no, true. That's true. You can't. I mean, I think I, my numbers could be wrong, though, but I, I have a number of people on that standing on that boat. Yeah. So. Well, especially if it was one of the last ones, it would have been absolutely yeah. packed. Like it yeah, yeah, it was. Exactly. It was. It was literally they, you know, they got all the other ones out and off. This was the last one. It was giving them trouble. And they were able to get it. They flipped it down upside down onto the boat deck and then jumped down and the ship sank. And so they floated yeah. off with it. So, but, um, but yeah, so anyway, so when I realized that it could be Jack, the, you know, my project was alive yet again, going, oh, see, it could be him because he didn't end up on that lifeboat. So maybe what I saw is what happened. So it was that type of thing. And that happened constantly. And so I went to his hometown, you know, at the time I was working on the Guinness World Record show. And my boss enticed me by saying, I'm going to send you to London for two weeks. And I want you to go through their vaults and look for stories. And of course, all I was thinking was, ooh, I'll get to go to Jack's hometown and see if I recognize it. Like that was how I was approaching it in the early days, because it was really before the web is what it was like now. You know, like there weren't a lot of details. And I figured, why don't I just go to his town? Because if I had any connection to this at all, I should recognize it. Right. And and I did recognize it. I had this weird deja vu and knew where his house was I and, and where the museum was that I was going to that day. It turns out it was like two doors down from where he worked. 
So, wow. you know, so I, I'm walking around looking, going, oh, yeah, I know this. Oh, he lives down there. So I was thinking maybe there is something to it. And maybe you need to do some past life regressions. Like maybe you really do have a connection to this guy. But then I got discouraged again thinking, mm, you know, is this worthwhile? It's stupid. And then I believe there was one other incident that, you know, I saw a photograph that was taken in the Marconi room back in 1912. And it eerily, eerily looked like me, like from behind, like it just body language, every single thing. And then at that point, I was like, OK, 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 OK. It's, I was going to ask you yeah. that. So for you, that was the moment where you <laughs> that went, was the okay. moment. That was the moment. And then, but then, true to form in the story, like you talked about, you know, then I found some caption that said it was Harold Bride, and I was like, no, 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 I'm not. No, it was not Harold Bride. It was Jack Phillips. And then I actually spent a bunch of time trying to research that theory that in fact it was Phillips. And so this was Father Francis Brown who took some of the most famous photos on Titanic. It was a postcard that was in his collection. You know, he didn't know who it was <laughs> sitting at the desk when he came in to take his picture. And he was trespassing in the room besides, and he took a double exposure, which he did at another place where he was trespassing, where he slipped into some, you know, parlor suite. He slipped into the suite that's depicted in the Titanic movie you know, a very opulent suite. And he took some pictures of it and it was another double exposure. And anyway, but yeah, so I did a whole thing to prove that, no, I, I really believe that was Jack Phillips. And that was enough for me to start my regressions, you know, to start really going at the regressions. And it's the same as Robert's case where he was trying to talk himself out of it. So he could, he didn't believe it at all. And I think it was you doing the research and every time, every single time it kept coming up, actually this yeah, yeah. is right yeah yeah no i i really do you know and it's funny because i wanted to just prove to myself that i wasn't crazy as i was going through it because you know like it would be such a big bummer to go through all this and then discover whoa you just made up some crap that's not true or something that you know or believe is absolutely wrong and you know I would be totally mortified to think that i spent a lot of time on this sort of exercise only to come to that but at the same time, I knew it would be such an embarrassment to talk about if it wasn't true. So, yeah, so I really looked at stuff and researched. And every time, even little ones, you know, and I, I do go into that in the book, like, you know, when I went to Jack's hometown, I took a train from Kings Cross there and, you know, ended up getting to a town called Guildford, which is near Godalming, which is where Jack's hometown was. And I had to take a taxi from Guildford to Godalming. And, you know, while I'm in these regressions, I'm seeing Jack basically arrive in town on a train and get picked up like right near, you know, very close to where he lived and, um, you know, be met at the station by his family or walked to it on the, you know, as he was departing during visits. And I was like, hmm, now this is a good place where you could be wrong. And I went and found some research and it's like, yeah, no, there, there is a line that goes right through and I think it's even still operational today but it goes to the other big station in London and I was coming from King's Cross so I you know I out of convenience if I had taken the tube I guess to the other station I could have gone right to Jack's town like right there in Farncombe and Guttelming but um you know but anyway but that just showed that I wasn't seeing stuff that was inaccurate to me 
because if I were basing it on what I knew, I wouldn't have written that. Yes, exactly, exactly. That's how I felt. Yeah. So actually, with regard to your regressions, then you do something that's quite interesting, and that is you tried to do some of the self-guided meditations or the or the self-hypnosis. And I've got to say, I was really delighted when you actually wrote about that because. A lot of people try them and they find it really difficult to do. They, they don't really get a lot of result. Mm. Do you have any kind of hints wow. about what you did to actually get such a strong result? I think it might be your memories were incredibly strong. but Well, it might be. No, and you know, my friend Stacy had, had a question about that. I guess I found two different takes that I used. And the first one, I saw some limited information. Um, and, but I felt like, you know, I had done it a couple of times and I got really everything I could. So then I found another one. I mean, they all tend to be the same. A lot of it, I, I would say is this, is that you have to feel completely comfortable with the voice of the person that's doing this. Like if you're in a room with someone or even maybe on a Skype and you can see them, you have a different connection than just hearing a disembodied voice. So I would have to say that. I didn't get many results from the first one because the guy's voice was, it was rather, it was really gruff and it, it, it didn't really, there was something about it that, you know, like we're all triggered by different things. So maybe it sounded like someone I knew in the past and didn't like. So, but when I found Mary Elizabeth Raines, I, I really just felt so easy with her voice and her recording. Her tape has a couple of practice things that you can do where you go in and you picture a fruit, where you go in and look at an orange and look at it at a molecular level and you wanna see the skin and you wanna see the, uh, the nub at the top and you wanna smell it and you wanna you know, feel it as you peel back the skin. So she gives you exercises that will prime you a little bit for it and those were very helpful to me. And maybe on a spiritual sense, what she does is tries to elevate your energy by balancing your chakras, by literally visualizing the colors as you go down your body. And she does it in such a way that if you don't know what chakras are, and by the way, when I did this, I had no idea what chakras were. You know, since then, you know, I've done some research and now I know what chakras are and I can do exercises to balance them myself. But at the time I didn't, but I just kind of went with what she told me and I think that it helped balance my chakras enough to be more of a clear channel for this stuff. I like the fact that she actually gets you to remember or imagine the smell of the fruit as well, because one of the common things that people say about the reincarnation memories is that it's actually sometimes brought about by memories of texture or smell. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Yeah. And I think that her, that exercise was so helpful because when I first saw Jack's bedroom growing up in his home, I could smell this overpowering smell of linen, like, you know, linen, like, oh, my God, it's like night at the museum, but I've been locked into the cleaners. You know, it's it was so powerful. And to to sort of realize, oh, my God, you're right. His parents owned a drapery store. They managed a drapery store that was right below them. And his his apartment was right above the drapery store. And of course, the smells would travel up. It's weird for me because these were very visual. Oh, I guess to jump to the chase after I did this whole experience and sort of realized, okay, there's, there is something to it. But before I actually finished writing the book, I was trying to do a TV show. Um, 
called Psychic U, where basically I found a school where they train people in mediumship. And the idea was to, you know, do like a reality show, you know, not with eliminations, like you don't fought out the worst psychic, but, you know, just try to every week have a seance and all that. And I thought it might be a cool thing to do, you know, as a show. And I found a school willing to do it. And but their caveat was they wanted us to take it. So I took the school. I went to the school and I found that I am more sensitive typically to energy and I'm pretty good at doing Reiki and some other sort of healing modalities. Um, and so visualization is not necessarily my strongest thing. You know, it's really more feel. So I do find it fascinating that I was able to see all that, you know, like with Jack, because it was very, it was all very, very vivid, you know, and it was interesting because what Mary Elizabeth would do is she would invite you to watch it like a movie if it were something painful. Like she would, I remembered as part of her thing is, you know, you can experience it right inside the body or you can step back and you can view it. And maybe it's more comforting to view it as other because you can see I'm not that person, you know? So it was kind of interesting, um, you know, because there were times when I saw stuff very vividly, like, like I saw his point of view, but other times I saw him doing stuff. You know, well, actually more towards the end. It was really all the end stuff I couldn't really take, you know, from when he's beating up the guy on. Like, you know, when it got to be really intense, I, I kind of pulled back on that. As I've been doing the research, when I first started, I was kind of not on board with the idea consciousness can kind of split and actually be in two places at once. But when you actually look at the near-death experiences and you talk to people who live in, in high-stress jobs and things, they do describe that it happens a lot. And I've, I've come to wonder if our consciousness doesn't have some sort of mechanism when we're going through something that is traumatic, that we can actually step out of our body and mm -hmm. look mm -hmm. down on it as well as, as well as be involved in it and still be functioning. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a protection so that the consciousness yeah. doesn't become too damaged by mm -hmm. dying. I agree. I agree. And that's why I, I used this quote at the beginning of my book that I found that was so shocking. And and actually did a little bit more research after that. But but one of the second class survivors on Titanic actually said that, that of survivors, almost all of them talked about at a certain point witnessing things from out of the body. They were just so stressed and that he had this thing when he was on the deck helping someone else get into their life belt and he was tying it on and he found himself looking at the scene from above and in safety. and 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 looking at himself as i think he called it as like an actor and and from what i understand that that was really talked about back at the turn of the 20th century there were a lot of people that discussed that as a phenomena but what i never saw was follow up on it you know like we don't hear about that as much today and we don't see people writing books about that as much today or you know doing segments on in search of but he was yeah he was pretty clear that a lot of titanic survivors did that. And so I found that fascinating because when it got down to the scary parts of the wreck, I saw it that way too. I didn't want to feel like I'm in the water any more than I had to. I just think that we actually have mechanisms that happen at the time of death that can not only protect us, but also other jumping off point to starting the cycle again. A bit like a homing pigeon knows how to go home. That is, that is true. And also it's fascinating to think about 
the idea that Jack is currently <laughs> is currently, you know, in 1912, he's on Titanic. I'm here, the native from the 1600s. The idea of time being immaterial is what's really freaky and weird. Is that we think of it as mm. a progression, like a timeline, but it's almost like nonlinear. You know, where I think possibly that was the reason why I was tapping into his stuff. You know, everything's happening at the same time. <laughs> mm. I know it's weird to think that, but it is another thing that actually people do describe when they have yeah. any of that experience is that time is not linear on that side of things, that it's actually yeah. very fluid and that it doesn't work the yeah. way we experience it here. I find that yeah. a mind flayed. It is. No, I can't even get my head around it. Other than saying that I think it's true, that, that's as far as I can get. Exactly. So you described in your book about the guilt that you felt about Jack's actions on the last night of his life mm-hmm. and how it led to mm-hmm. several moments of emotional sort of almost overload to you. Yeah. But yeah. you mentioned in the book that you came to realize that Jack was just sort of one factor in a perfect storm of things that went wrong that night. Do right. you still have feelings of the strong emotion or do you feel like you've kind of put that to rest now? You know, I think it was very profound for me. It was so healing in a way to go to the cemetery up in Halifax, where there are three different cemeteries in Halifax where unclaimed victims were brought and they were provided burials by the Canadian government. And I, I felt like really peaceful there. In some ways, if the 51 year thing of Helen Wombox is true, all of these people are back now anyway. So me mourning them is like what um but yeah i felt kind of peaceful about it and the fact is is that um even since i wrote the book i discovered more (laughs) i mean i guess as humans right we want to blame somebody and jack made mistakes that night there was a you know there was an ice warning that came in that basically didn't have the address line and so you know he basically was lazy he knew it was a navigational thing but it didn't come saying to the captain. And back then, you know, it's like a fax cover sheet. You know, when a message comes in, it starts with to so-and-so. And this one didn't have any to so-and-so. It was just the message. And from the message, you could glean that it was navigational equipment. But, you know, I think Jack felt that, well, two things. He was having a little feud with one of his <laughs> friends. Uh, who was working up in the bridge that moment, and he didn't want to deal with him at that second. He was kind of mad at him. And he knew that his assistant was going to be coming up in an hour, and he figured, I'll just let him deal with it. Um, and, um, you know, and he had already delivered a bunch of ice warnings to the bridge, so he kind of didn't think it was a big deal. And then, you know, and then right before the incident, there was another famous thing where, again, someone comes in and he's chatting. You know, like there was a code there and everyone was trained by Marconi as to what to do. And, you know, you're listening for these strange little beeps and boops that are coming over your headphones. And it's like a stream and you're transcribing it. And if somebody doesn't start the message to so-and-so, you know, what are you going to do? And that was really what he dealt with. But it's painful when I when I realized that, you know, that somebody basically broke in the Californian, which was, uh, you know, I mean, let, let's face it, Cyril Evans, who was the Marconi operator on that ship, was, um, you know, not the brightest bulb, I can say now. He didn't send it in the appropriate way. 
if, to put it into Titanic terms, whatever, if Captain Smith had come into the Marconi room and said, we are stopped for the night, there's ice everywhere. I want you to tell every ship that's in 50 miles of here. Okay, Jack and Harold would have, you know, called out for a roll call of ships. They would have addressed this master service gram to each individual captain, and they would have followed through on those instructions. This guy was like, you know, hey, dude, we're stopped for ice. <laughs> you know? And I mean, you know, he didn't say the dude part, but, you know, he was basically like, um, you know, and it just was like chatter. And, you know, chatter could be tolerated. You know, there's some, there weren't in normal times. There was a lot of boredom for, you know, on certain ships for certain Marconi operators. That wasn't true of Jack and Harold. Titanic was fairly busy. But, there, you know, so, yeah, there could be chatter. But. So Jack didn't realize that this guy was doing this. But the bottom line is I'm being super critical. The reality is Jack was a little officious. He was letting personal things get in the way. And, you know, had he asked a few more questions of the chatterer who said we're stopped for ice, would happen to be just 20 miles away from him right at that moment, you know, and between them was an ice field that included the one that got them. You know, that was really hard to take. but. But, you know, yeah, I mean, in, in looking at this, it was a comedy of errors. There were so many things that were wrong. You know, just because this message didn't go through didn't change the fact that the White Star Line fired one of the senior officers. He left in a huff and took the keys to the cupboard in the officer's quarters that contained or held the binoculars or the lookouts. So these guys oh, were standing. Oh, yeah, yeah, they were standing up on the crow's nest with no binoculars, and you know, and of course, it'll tell you maybe kind of the values of the time, where no one was like, "Dude, break open that door," you know. Their attitude was, "That's white star line property," you know, <laughs> and <laughs> so I mean, it was like, yeah. So so that happened. Um, Captain Smith had a really terrible record for all of his stuff. And I just found out this too. He grounded three steamers before Titanic. You're joking, really? No, no, I just found this out. And I never knew this. And one of them, after it was grounded, there was an engine room fire that killed one or two people. Um, wow. Right before the incident, there was a collision between the Olympic, his last ship, and the um, either the SS or the RMS Hawk. Uh, and it's Hawk with an E, where it did significant damage to, uh, you know, Olympic, which is Titanic's sister ship. So here's a guy who's crashing around on an identical ship. And you go, hey, yes, hey, perfect. He's our guy. So, so why did they yeah. then choose him? Because, I mean, you would have thought that their their best and brightest liner would have got their best and brightest well, people. Well, yeah, but it's one of those things where you, you it's almost like going back in time before 9-11, right? You, no one really thought that skyscrapers were a danger. I mean, that, mm. that somehow planes would come in and destroy them. Like, it was never even conceived. And for all the arrogance of the time, people didn't conceive that, uh, uh, you know, an, ice, an iceberg, please, you know, it floats in my drink, you know. Uh, Not only that, I, too, I, Titanic yeah. was unthinkable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And with the advances in that, that they were, yeah, no, they prided themselves on they couldn't imagine a scenario playing out where more than three compartments would flood. And I think Titanic had four. The tipping point was 
apparently the you know the grinding of the plates and the separating of them went on you know like as titanic was grinding against the iceberg the iceberg was breaking apart and it didn't break apart fast enough and that's really the issue because it was so large and and also too i think some people have done research where they show that that the titanic actually probably grounded on the iceberg like drove over oh, the, really? the base yeah when you think about it it's like a mountain you know, and just sticking out is the top. So, yeah. So the bottom line is, yeah, they couldn't conceive of it being a problem. So even though, you know, I mean, the millionaires loved him. They advertise it like he was a schmoozy guy. You know, he's like the captain of the love boat. They all wanted to sit at his table. Right. You know, is it true that the ship was actually moving faster because they were trying to beat the record as well? Well, you know, I mean, I, that's one I truly don't know. And I don't have any information from Jack on that. Um, from what I understand, though, I mean, people claim that. Um, and especially that Ismay was the one pushing that. He was the managing director of White Star Line. And, uh, you know, he, Jack's experience with him was he was just a lovely guy and very kind. You know, he wasn't rude at all to him. Uh, so he didn't have any experience with this guy being villainous and being arrogant. Yeah, you know, not like that guy that's not in the movie, you know, you know, in the movie where they're like, you know, they're making fun of him for not knowing Freud. I just felt like his character was off and he's been vilified. And, you know, I mean, it's really hard to think what you would do in that situation. If there's a boat there and they have to launch it, are you going to get in? If the crew says get in, we, we're launching. But he did. And then he basically got ruined for it. You know, his whole career was like, you should have died. You know, that's what people told him. That's a bit harsh. So I don't know. I don't know. It is harsh. I don't think that was right. I don't think that was fair. But then again, what historical event has ever either fair or represented fairly? Very true. Yeah, it's like, who tells the stories? The survivor tells the story. They're full of crap. Then that becomes They'll you know, put gospel. On yeah. Mm-hmm. When I realized that we reincarnate, I realized there's no point disliking another group or another race or whatever, because chances are you're going to end mm-hmm. up becoming that person at some point, or mm-hmm. you may, you know, so there's yeah. no point in doing it. But you make a really interesting point, and that is that while I might feel that, you still go through life, you still experience things, and so therefore you do tend to build up little kind of um, antipathies to certain people and groups and things, and that you feel that that's where some of the strong nationalism and racism is coming from, which I suppose is actually about what your next book is about, actually, thinking about it. <laughs> You're right. I realize now that I think I did talk about that in a sense in the book. Um, yeah, yeah. If somebody has memories of being attacked or chased or, you know, killed by a certain group of people in, you know, whoever it is, um, you know, if you have these feelings and these memories are resurfacing, it can lead to you really, you know, having prejudices and hates that you shouldn't. It yeah. makes you realize that we hopefully learn from our experiences, but if we don't, we're going to repeat the same negative behavior. Right, exactly. And that was what's terrifying for me. Like when I had that thought, I realized, oh, my God, like, you know, because, yeah, when you hear that 90,000 white nationalists are marching in Poland and the Polish government, you know, essentially makes it a crime. Like I intentionally use the word in my new book, Polish death camps, just because it's illegal to say that in Poland and you could be in prison for saying it because oh, really? they, they are, yeah, because they deny their association with that. Those are the Germans. That wasn't us. And you can't say 
Polish death camps. And I'm like, oh no, it happened in Poland and with the complicity of a lot of people. So you don't get to say that that you don't like history and we can't talk about it. So, you know, I don't yeah, care. I was going to say, I've got a feeling your book sales are going to be crap in Poland. <laughs> I think so. And I really don't care. I would look at that as a badge of honor. But mm. it just shows me like these attitudes, like really look at the numbers of people under 21. There was some, there was some study that came out recently that, I mean, some ridiculously low amounts of millenn- younger than millennials, like this new generation, believe that six million Jewish people were murdered in, during the Holocaust. You know, part of it is that I remember, at least from my generation, it was the first generation kind of trying to account for the shame. And there were books that were published all the time. There was a mini series called Holocaust and Winds of War and War and Remembrance. And, you know, um, and obviously Schindler's List. Like we it was told in stories. Um, but it's just shocking to me that a lot of these groups not only didn't know it, like it wasn't just like. Oh, my God, really? It was. Oh, no, that didn't happen. It's yeah. interesting, isn't it? And and as the yeah. old saying goes, if you ignore history, you're doomed to repeat it. And that is what worries me now in our current situation. I look at the world and the lack of understanding of people towards other people. And you just look and think it's a frightening place to live today. No, it can be. But I just think that if we all take a big collective breath and probably 52 years later, Someone's going to be slapping our butt and we're going to be screaming our head off and be back again. Yeah. So, so, so I, if I mean, we get it wrong, I guess we'll, we can always yeah, have a redo yeah, you later. Know, and it'll be like, okay, <laughs> so you have to fix it again. And, and that, I mean, so I think that's kind of hopeful, but I agree with you. It's a terribly scary time. And it's a very scary time with coronavirus and all of these things happening. Um, but yeah, but I, I think the perspective of, you know, that we do come around again. I think you have to keep your optimism and, and we get a lot of people yeah. um, commenting in the forums, oh my God, why would you want to come back? You know, life is so miserable. And I keep writing, well, maybe the mm. point is that we're supposed to be a force for good while we're down here. Maybe we're supposed to be mm. the voice in the dark. And mm-hmm. maybe if more people do actually accept that, maybe we might make We might a get somewhere finally, and right? Think, yeah, exactly. And yeah. actually, that's one of the questions that I wanted to ask. I've got a, a, just one more question I want to ask you. When you finished the book, you finished it on the realisation that experiencing the horror of Jack's death one more time, that you could actually change the experience for both himself and for you by by not focusing on the death, but by sending him a feeling of overwhelming love. And that was a really interesting mm-hmm. comment because Jim Tucker actually goes into it in detail in his book where he talks about quantum theorists now believe that our consciousness can actually alter the environment around us. And I suppose mm-hmm. that's what I'm actually asking. Do you feel that we can consciously change our environment for a better place? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have to believe that. I have to hope that. I Part of it is we have to have our feet on the ground right now and be vocal and do things that we need to to protect our countries and our world, you know. But at the same time, every minute that we spend in meditation, because we are all connected, the way that someone described it to me was every thought that you have actually sends one little sliver off to someone else. You know, for every good thought, every bad thought, there's this web of connectivity to all of our souls. And it truly is like raising the grid. So anyone who takes the time to meditate and bring themselves up, it actually has an effect, a physical effect on all the other 
people. It travels through our web to everyone we've ever talked to, everyone we've ever thought about, and it benefits them. So, so I think it is important in this time to center and to stay in love as often as you can, because it will help raise the overall grid. Now, as far as physically transforming, you know, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. But I think that transforming the people by giving them a boost that comes out of nowhere and just kind of lifts them is a good thing. Trying to be kind and loving and be gentle in every way and every dealing, you know, unless someone is spouting Nazism and then pull out the stop. But yeah, but no, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Well, I think that's a lovely spot to leave our conversation. And I must say, thank you so much. This has been amazing. I've just enjoyed every second. Well, I have as well. Thank you, Marilyn. Really, really appreciate that. Well, keep an eye out for both your books. I thoroughly recommend people to buy them because I just love the man who sent the SOS. That was just such a great book. I appreciate it. I will give you one warning on the 25, which is that, you know, because I guess in my real life, I do a lot of crime show writing. I, um, you know, it kind of has more adult language than the man who sent the SOS. I wrote it in 2017 and it is set in the future. Like the 25 is set in 2022. So it's only set two years from now. And the sequel is set in 2023. But there's violence in it. There's adult language. And um, while it does explore everything I talked about, the you know, past lives and reincarnation, it, um, you know, it has a depiction of sexual assault in a past life story. So I just want to have a word of caution to the more sensitive readers. I think that's how we grow, by yeah. exploring things that are confronting sometimes. So Yes, yeah. yeah. So you. I look forward it's to true. it. I can't wait to read it. I, I just love the other one so much. You do a blog as well. So do you want to tell people about your blog? Oh, well, yeah, uh, paulamaral.com is my website. I, my blog is on there, but I haven't been as current as I have wanted to be. However, I have a Facebook page called Paul Amaralt Author, where I tend to have more stuff on it, more current stuff. And I take photos when I'm traveling and I put little sayings on them and I do memes like a couple times a week, just pretty thoughtful things, I think. So if you would care to follow along, you get announcements of my books and I will put a link to this for sure um, and to let people know about your podcast in general. Uh, thank you so much, Paul. That's really lovely. Thank you. You're welcome. There was just so much in the book that we couldn't cover due to time. So I really recommend you pick up a copy of The Man Who Sent the SOS to get the full story of Paul's search for the truth and Jack's life. Paul mentioned an incident with a stoker a few times and the pain he felt at reliving that part of the memories, but we never got to speak about what happened. So to fill you in, after Titanic was struck by the iceberg at 11.40pm, Jack was still at the desk as the end of his shift neared at midnight. Harold Bride was getting ready to relieve Jack. Shortly after midnight, Captain Smith appeared in the Marconi room and told Phillips to prepare to send out a distress signal. He then returned later on to the Marconi room and told them to send out the call for assistance and gave them Titanic's estimated position. Jack began sending out the distress code, CQD, while Bride relayed messages to Captain Smith about which ships were coming to Titanic's aid. At one point, Harold Bride jokingly said to Jack, Send SOS, it's the new call, and it might be your last chance to send it out. 
which tragically turned out to be the truth. Harold took over while Jack took a quick break, and when Jack returned, he told Harold that they needed to put more clothes on and get their lifebelts on because the forward part of the ship was flooded. Harold began to get ready while Jack went back to the wireless to keep sending the distress call. Harold Bride would later recall that he was very moved by the way that Jack kept working, sending the SOS for as long as he could. And this is where the stoker comes in, because while both men were distracted, a crew member, believed to be a stoker or trimmer, crept into the Marconi room and attempted to steal Jack's life belt. Harold Bride saw him and grabbed him, and Jack stood and knocked the crew member out. Water began to flood into the wireless room as they both ran out, leaving the unconscious man behind, obviously condemning him to death. Paul has very clear memories of the event, and his memories match exactly with the recounted version supplied by Harold Bride. Bride and Phillips split up at that moment, and that was the last time that Harold Bride saw Phillips. The moment in the book that I found undeniable was Paul's discovery that his memories of the Marconi room on the Titanic didn't gel with the diagrams of the Titanic's deck plans. The blueprints showed the suite running parallel to the port wall of the boathouse. In fact, the main room even appeared to have a porthole on the outside deck. But Paul had memories of a small white room with no porthole and a sleeping compartment attached to it with a rather disturbing skylight that had a strange refraction in the glass that made it look like the smokestack was about to fall. When Paul discovered the discrepancy, he was devastated because he realised that his memories must be wrong and that all those long hours of work had been for nothing. So he sank into despondency for a little while and he abandoned the project again. But then he had a thought. What if, as the Titanic was being fitted out, the Marconi room was moved for some reason? Once more he started researching and eventually he came across a site by an American researcher called Park Stevenson who provided the information that the Marconi room had indeed been moved in the final weeks as the builders decided to move the Marconi suite inboard so they could free up more window space for first-class cabins. That fact to me is really compelling because there is no way that anybody really could have known that information. So to me that's pretty definitive proof. So if you decide you do want to read the book, you can purchase it from Amazon.com as a Kindle edition or a paperback. And if you feel like something fictional with a little meat on its bones, you can check out Paul's other book, The 25, which, as Paul tells us, also has a reincarnation theme as well. Paul has written this book under his pen name of Ace Bryant, and it can be found on Amazon.com as a paperback or an e-book. And as mentioned in the podcast, if you'd like to keep up with Paul's work, he has a Facebook page as well, and you can find him by looking up Paul Amaralt Author. So his surname is Amaralt, A-M for Mary, I-R-A-U-L-T. It's actually a great site, and it's well worth a look, as he often posts articles from other sites of what interesting people are working on. And, um, you know, there's also a sprinkling of positive quotes, which I also love seeing, and some rare pics of the Titanic. For those of you who might be interested in trying Mary Elizabeth Rain's CDs, I couldn't find any on Amazon.com, although there were some of her handbooks available for purchase that covered the same subject matter. However, her CDs can be purchased on her own website, The Laughing Cherub, which is at www.thelaughingcherub.com, or they can also be purchased on eBay. Thanks so much for listening to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We hope you enjoyed this case. 
If you have any interesting stories about reincarnation or if you can relate your own past life experiences, I'd love to hear about them. And I can be contacted through my email at reincarnationplr at gmail.com or via my Facebook page called Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We'll be back again soon with another episode, but until then, remember, you are unique and your life has a purpose. Mm -hmm.